Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 541, with Michael Oxton and Rob Burns of Night Shift Brewery. What's up, Guardy? Yeah, I mean, we, we've sort of made it like another one of our mantras around here is like often a manager's job is to, you know, work themselves out of that job uh, in that they set up their department well enough that they could leave and someone else could take over um, and they go on to, you know, get promoted or do something else. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. Introducing Ethics Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicssuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guests, Mike Oxen and Rob Burns. Mike and Rob, are you guys feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. So unstoppable. <laughs> yes, that's what we like. Not to on hear. the same page, though. <laughs> so, desk jockeys Michael Oxen, Mike O'Mara, or O'Mara, I was corrected, and Rob Burns started homebrewing in 2007. By 2012, they were officially licensed brewery uh, with a mission to create and share a world class culture built around their passions. This belief influences everything from their branding to their sales service, to their staffing, to their taproom environment, and to their processes on the production floor. Two years later, and with much increase in demand and success, uh, they made the move to their 30,000 square foot facility, and they have a new restaurant on the horizon. I can't wait to kind of hear about this whole uh, belief that has such influence on how you guys do everything with in uh, your brewery, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you guys have for us? Who wants to go first? I'll swing the mic. I'll, yeah, I, I wrote one down right before we started. This is um, Michael speaking. Get this used is to Michael. The voices. <laughs> um, I, I wrote down, uh, I, I love this. You need humility to see the world as it is, but audacity to imagine how it could be. Ooh. Um, like basically, you know, be honest and uh, search for truth, but at the same time, you know, be bold, set big goals, and uh, you know, try and be optimistic about what you can do to change the world. Beautiful, Rob. Do you want to add anything to that? Do you have a, your own line you want to drop on us? Sure. Uh, mine's more of a, a mantra that I'm stealing from Amazon. That okay. the, the kind of idea of trying to be a day one company every day, mm. and that idea of every day you're still a startup. You still got to figure it out. You can't rest on your laurels. You got to go. 
and try to be a better company every single day. And you can't just sit back. Otherwise, that's when the competition comes yeah, and there, takes, takes over. There's no such thing as made it, really. Nope. Once you think you've made it, that's when every Because you just set the standard and everybody's at your heels. And you got people that are hungry that are going to surpass what you did. So you got to constantly be evolving and moving forward. Great way to get this thing started. So... Let's get a little bit of a backstory. The, the mic's on Rob. So, Rob, what were you doing before 2007? So I graduated college with a computer science degree and, and moved down to Boston and to started working for a couple of different tech companies. I was doing more of the automation engineering side of things, uh, working for, for tech companies. And I did that for about six years. And while I did love that, that career path, uh, it, it just wasn't fulfilling enough for me. And I've always wanted to start my own company through my college days and stuff. And even before that, kind of did a little odds and ends businesses that I, that I would start at, either from the back of my trunk or from my dorm room. Um, so when the opportunity came to partner with the, the Mikes uh, to really start a brewery, sounded way more fun than, than sitting at a desk uh, and writing computer code. Okay. So I'm going to swing in a little deeper, but first let me put the mic on Michael and kind of get the, the same background story real quick. Sure. Um, so I went to Bowdoin College with Rob, uh, degree in English, um, so you know, no qualifications for beer. Um, <laughs> uh, graduated, and I, I kind of look at like my career path as like a series of me figuring out what I didn't want to do. Um, that's kind of how I've started to sort of see that path. Um, I was in publishing for a little bit. I joined Rob's software company for a little bit. Um, I picked up you know, interesting experiences along the way. Um, at the software company, I worked in client services. So like understanding customer problems and trying to figure out how to solve them was like a huge part of my day. Communications was a huge part of my day. So I think I developed skills there, but like I definitely didn't want to stay in that desk job for the rest of my life. Um, I taught English in Chile. That's cool. Which was, you know... D- Really difficult and really awesome at the same time. Uh, did some backpacking around South America. Worked for an ESL company and even worked on the movie Ted. Uh, oh, cool! With Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> it's a really weird experience. So typically, yeah, and, uh, do you want to keep going? Am I cutting you short? No. no then I, okay. Then I, as I was doing that, I was working on the business plan with these guys, and then we started the brewery. So it, it's interesting. Every once in a while, I get somebody on the show who doesn't really have a background in food and beverage. A lot of people they get started working as a dishwasher, then they were a server or bar bartender, manager, and they had all these. Uh, these mentors in their life that taught them about the restaurant or about the hospitality industry, about the food and beverage industry. But you guys kind of were, you know, out doing your own uh, like corporate slash. Uh, I don't even know like the title for half the things that Michael did, uh, and it's really interesting. Uh, we should we should ask too. Uh, what was Mike O'Mara doing at this time? Do you, you want to speak to that? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, Ma- Michael Mara. He he graduated from. Um a school in Philadelphia, and he he went into f- kind of finance. He was he's working for City Financial, writing kind of small loans, uh, and he really hated that um, kind of being a, a debt collector and 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 writing these loans to people. Then he he tried to I forget I think he started selling like window shades at one point, and then was like, this is just terrible. <laughs> like I got to do something I'm actually passionate about and actually gets me up and excited every morning. And at the time. I was bringing homebrews down to him. I grew, we grew up in the same town uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, he was like, you can make these in your apartment? Like, what? Uh, and so this is between 2007, 2009, I'm yep. thinking? Okay. And then he was like, "Let's." I, I got to 
move up and, and try to be a part of this if we're actually going to start a business. And then he moved up and he was bartending at, at Redbones. He's probably like the only one with any kind of restaurant experience of the group uh, leading up to opening the, to the business. Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is your backgrounds are not typical from people who get into food and beverage. You had a passion. You started small, which we'll get into. But how do you think you're – if you could pick some of the, the lessons, uh, and maybe you could even speak for Mike, some of the things that you learned, some of the mentors you had leading up to this point that set you up for success, is there anything that kind of comes to mind or any life lessons or people who influenced you? Or was it you studying the whole like startup thing that maybe you think had a, a big influence? I'm talking to Rob now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any one mentor for me. I was never into sports or, or, or things like that, so I would always follow his business. I would read business news. I would always look to entrepreneurs as, for inspiration. And so I, I kind of always wanted to create and and have something that, that, that came out of, of what I was excited about. Um, and so that that kind of led, us down, led me down the path of, like, what could I create? Uh, and, and we were all big beer consumers. We loved drinking with our friends. It started way back in college, too, where it was just like, you know, great. We drank a ton of Natty Light, sure. Uh, but it, it, it started was PBR like, for me. Yeah. <laughs> Natty Light was, was our go-to back in the college. Uh, but it was like, why does this beer taste different than that? And that started this whole spiral of like, let's try as many beers as possible, not solely to get drunk, but to to experience the flavors. And that kind of spiraled into like, well if we really want to understand the product, we got to get our hands into the product and, and make the beers ourselves. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of then spiraled into like, wait, we could make, we could start a business around this uh, and we could drink beer after during work. That sounds fun. <laughs> right. We end up drinking a lot less beer than we, I think originally wrote in the business plan. But <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, swing the mic back over to Michael, Michael, like, uh, same question. Like, what were your your major influences uh, leading up to this point uh, that kind of set you up for success? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, one person I'll point to that I think is an easy one is my dad. Um, he, uh, the quote I think that I, I use for him is like he told me at one point like, "Don't live a gray life." Um, at one point, he found himself like leaving for work, and he like was wearing like a gray suit, had a gray suitcase, <laughs> gray car, going to like his gray office. I don't think and, I'm wearing any gray. These are kind of yeah. okay. We're good. We're safe. <laughs> I'll wear gray sometimes, but <laughs> uh, and it, he literally had this like aha moment of like, I don't even like what I'm doing. What am I doing? And he quit his job, uh, started a photography business, and like. You know, he had some basics on photography, but like really worked his way from the bottom up, like assistant jobs for like five years, really crappy work and like ended up becoming like a successful photographer. Um, so, I, you know, that was super inspirational for me just to be around that all the time. Um, and I, I think that really set me up for this idea of like, don't live a gray life, think independently. Um, you know, question your path if it feels like the wrong one. Yeah. You, you mentioned something earlier when you were on the mic that you kind of were getting all these experiences and figuring out what you didn't want to do. And I think that is a key thing to, to, to if you're listening to this and you're in your early twenties or you're even maybe in your teens, late teens, get out there and get experience, try different things, fall on your ass a bunch of times, get back up and realize what lane you belong in. Uh, and the only way you can do that is by getting out, traveling to different parts of the world, trying different things and realizing what it is you like and you don't like. I think that's one key lesson from your, your story. Um, any one of those, those, so where are you? What exactly? The one thing I'm curious about, it seems like, and if I'm making assumptions, please feel free to, to correct me. It sounds kind of like Rob is like the chef. 
right? Uh, <laughs> is that safe to say? Like he's the creator. Yeah, like uh, he he's the person that kind of likes doing the thing, the technician, right? Uh, what hats do Michael and Mike wear? That's what I'm curious. No, about. it's a good question. Um, I mean, you know, if you if you look back when we very very when we started at the very beginning, you know, Rob was um, the most uh, production focused and the most recipe focused so i mean he's also like i'd say of the three of us he's got the most like kitchen skills so he was cooking a lot of meals and even like using some culinary inspiration yeah, uh, for our recipe and the so, things that like triggered it for me is he said he likes to create and i think that's a uh quality that uh chefs or whatever put the title on they, they want to make things they're curious they want to dive in there they want to figure out how things work and then once they figure it out they were like well i can do this and, and they create their own thing uh so what is it I yeah, kind of, yeah. Kind of short what, what's going on in your head so if yeah looking back um you know it's really grown from these roles where I was more sort of like coming up with our look, our brand, our marketing, our sales. Um, I, you know, I, am fascinated by people. I love working with people. And also I love just visuals, art. Um, and I like finding problems and trying to fix them. So like figuring out why our customers would want to buy this and telling the right story. So I don't know if I can concisely put that together, but hopefully that made sense. All right, and what was uh Omar or Mara? I keep on saying his name wrong. If he's listening to this, he's gonna yeah, no, it's okay. He's fine. He'll, <laughs> he'll be okay. Uh, and he's been more involved on sort of like the, the finance business. Okay, uh, that's what I assumed. You know, and like a little bit more on like you know diving into detail stuff. Like if if someone's gonna review a lease. I would say he's probably the most capable of finding the small little details that yeah. he and I might, Rob and I might miss. So it's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm curious who who kind of was the one that said we should do this, we should make this happen. Who was the one that really pushed for this to come together? I was. I mean, I, I would say Rob was the one who really pushed the hardest. Um, and I think you know, I was especially like if if you look at my path, you know, I, I was sampling various things and during that whole time you know we were home brewing and that was like the one consistent thread and i think rob was driving that the most of the three of us um and i just you know being around that enough it like it just became like so exciting uh to imagine this path forward and i think you know with rob being like the big driving force the three of us just started talking more and more about it and it became it went from being this sort of like funny idea to like potential reality. Mm. Um, and along the way, I think what we learned too is like, we all, we all can do this together. Like you, you learn a lot about each other, just homebrewing, mm-hmm. like into the night, like three in the morning, like we're all still there. We're all still cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Like the camaraderie, the not having to go through and learn on your own, uh, is huge. So I'm, let's bring it back to Rob. Um, so Rob, Take me through what's going through your mind. Uh, it's it's post two thousand seven now. You guys have been homebrewing for a little while. Uh, you start thinking to yourself, okay, this this could be more than just a hobby. This could be our, our careers. Like, what's going through your mind? How are you building this team? So I, it should be said that our, our name comes from the fact that we would come home from our desk jobs, and and we would stay up. I, I mean, Michael just mentioned it. We would stay up all night brewing batches of beer. The the general process takes about eight hours. It's you know, in, in kitchen, the simplest way to describe it as far as cooking is making a big pot of soup. Yeah. Uh, that then you let ferment like bread. Uh, so we started, we started doing that. Uh, and we always set out to like, let's not make just another pale ale. Let's not make an IPA. We can, we don't need to spend eight hours and be up to 3 a.m. 
uh, when we can go to the, the liquor store one block away and, and buy some great pale ales. So that's where the culinary kind of influence in the early days really came from. It was like, well, let's take inspiration from other dishes, cultures, beverages, and, and kind of layer that in. And then that spiraled into like, well, let's get feedback of people that aren't, you know, bi- naturally biased of yeah. I made this so it's awesome. The people giving you the people that you're giving the free beer to are going to yeah. tell you that it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that spiraled into like let's we, we it should also be said too that the the three of us as lived in a house that had six bedrooms and at any given time there was six people that lived there sometimes eight or nine uh, a mix of guys and girls and it was uh, nonstop. There was always somebody that had the day off the next day that was either drinking or having friends over or whatever. So a little bit of a, an animal house So style. you had like your own test market. Yeah. And so we put a kegerator in there and then we would throw parties. And the only and it was basically open invite. Dude, invite anybody and anybody you know. The only requirement is people have to fill out a, a comment and rating card. Oh, my God. So smart. Trying. Whose idea was that? I don't know where the original idea came from. That's but, so smart. And we would have eight, sometimes ten different beers on tap. We were basically running a bar. And it was drink as much as you want, serve yourself, and and just give us feedback. And we did that for a couple of years. And as the feedback evolved into like, I would pay money for this. Like, I great that it's free, but this is better than what I can buy at the store. Why can't I buy this at the store? That kind of gave us the motivation to like, let's hunker down, let's write a business plan, yeah. let's let's dive deep into the industry. I'm and squirming right now. If you guys <laughs> can't see me at home, but like, I am squirming right now because I love uh, what you're dropping on us. Uh, and I say it all the time, like, just start where you can't. Everybody has like this vision of like, oh, we need to be here before we need, we need the space. Just start in your living room, invite people in. Like this industry is all about just hospitality, bringing people in, feeding or uh, providing beverage to people in. And you guys literally started your own little test market. Not only did you do that, but you started growing your brand, right? You're getting the word out there. Like, we, we're these three dudes. This is what we're doing. Come check it out, you know? And that's how you start. I don't know if you're intentional about building an email list at this time. Maybe not. But why not, right? Why not start a, a, a website and start developing an email list? You can do that on day one when you start your first recipe. Why not? Like, start now. It's huge stuff. Sorry. Got a little yeah. jacked yeah. up there. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So kind of want to go back to, um, the original question, which was how were you thinking about building your team? Um, did you, what were you being like intentional about Mike and Mike or Michael and Mike, I should say, uh, did they have certain qualities that you're like, if I'm going to, I mean, it was a group effort. Maybe I shouldn't assume that like you, am I, am I making assumptions now? I I don't want to make assumptions. No, it was was definitely a group effort. I I think. Uh, at one point, there was kind of a six of us in this kind of homebrew group that were thinking about starting a brewery, and then sort of one by one, they they dropped out. And one is like on his path to be a brain surgeon, so I don't fault him. One of them uh, helps uh, underprivileged kids get into college, so he made an excellent choice. That's probably more impactful to society than what I do and and the mics do. But uh, eventually, it came down to three, and I I do honestly believe a lot of our success is that the three of us have different skill sets and different ideas and but at the same time we work really well together and and we kind of balance each other out we we push each other we're not afraid to say like that idea sucks uh and and at the end of the day we come out with a really solid concept or execution plan and um because we we have different skill sets we can help lead different parts of the business forward um, which has been hugely impactful. So do you think it just kind of happened? Uh, you know, sometimes I, I look at people who are successful and 
they have these people in their life that play key roles or they they're in certain lanes and it's like you know it, it looks much easier when everybody can just focus on that one thing that they do did you guys just naturally kind of fall into your lanes or was there somebody that was like hey like if i'm if we're going to grow this like i need somebody who's all over the branding i i suck at the numbers and the details i need somebody who's who's good at finance and all that were you kind of being intentional about i don't like it's hard for me to assume i don't want to assume it was you kind of making these choices uh, bringing people in or did it just happen it it happened a little bit naturally but it's continue to evolve over the years of like, you know, we, I feel like almost every year we're each of the three of us are in charge of different things. And we're always like, as we learn who we are and what we're good at, we were shifting around responsibilities so that we can, we can capitalize on our strengths and not our weaknesses. I mean, like Michael mentioned, the other Mike is really good at details. So now he's in charge of the construction projects that we're doing and, mm-hmm. and, and he's, he will figure out that one line in the, the drawing that shows like the water doesn't flow to the right place. And then like that stuff isn't either of our strong suits. I mean, we're definitely not, I'm more of like the napkin math guy of like, yeah, this checks out. I think we can, yeah. we can do this. And, and similar to him. And I'm also the guy that's like, I can come up with, I like to cook at home too. Uh, and I'm the guy who could come up with a great recipe, but I'm not the guy to plate the dish. Mm. I, I'm not that guy. I, I need Michael's help to kind of visualize what I'm trying to project. Yeah. And Michael, you're getting squirmy over there. Is there something you want to add on to this? You want to get on the mic? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just changing position. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just but want to make no, sure. I'll, um, you know, here's what, here's what I'll say. I think, um, you know, when we started, we fell into roles that made sense for our, our skills and abilities. However, you know, I, I think we've continued to keep this mindset of like, we're trying to do what's good for the business or like what the business needs. Mm-hmm. So like when we started, I mean, I was also like our delivery guy. Right. And like, I wasn't like a really good delivery guy, but like, that's just what needed to happen. So I think a lot of the time we're we've also just been trying to figure out like, well, where does the business need me? And does that fit with like what I can do and what I'm good at? And okay. You know, fortunately, we've been able to grow the company, and so we hire skills that you know fit roles that are better than we could ever be at, um, and it allows us to kind of like hone our own personal careers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like Rob said, every year we meet, and that discussion, or more often than that, we, we talk. But that discussion is always like, what does the business need from us? Um, and if we can't do it, who should we bring in that can? Yeah. Uh, which is key to know your. And I think a lot of people are afraid to admit their weaknesses or to say like, I'm not good at that. But the faster you can admit what you're good at or bad at, the faster you can find somebody who's much better than you are at doing that thing. And the faster the whole group can progress together. Uh, awesome stuff. So, uh, anything that, any, any interesting stories that we should, uh, bring out of the, the greater story of you guys scaling this thing in the early days, that's worth kind of dropping on us now that maybe there's a lesson to be, to be brought from that story. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of putting you on the spot real quick. I mean, we we, uh, we yeah. definitely have tons of stories. I mean, I <laughs> I think like anything from the outside looking in, it always looks like it's smooth sailing and that we've had just a great, easy, successful path. But man, I, mean, I we we've seen some crazy stuff. We've had employee challenges. We've had personal challenges, financial challenges. 
Uh, I mean, we can go in any direction. Uh, so I'm curious. You started doing all these. Uh, you just basically started brewing this beer. You'd have parties. Uh, you're getting feedback from people. Was that from 2007 to 2009? Did that continue through past 2009 when you guys were technically – was it 2012 you guys were an official brewery? Or? Yep. Okay. 2012 is when we actually opened. But, yeah, that continued to the, pretty much the day we opened the doors. Um, and then – since then, I don't think any of the three of us has ever homebrewed again. But uh, <laughs> uh, we just drink the beer at night now, not not make it. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, it, that continued that evolution. I mean, I, I, for stories, I mean, we've we've had negative money in our bank account. We've had people crash into our building. We once had a motorcycle gang that was bringing in moonshine uh, uh, across from us as a neighbor. Um, uh, there's so many yeah i'm trying to think of like one really specific like this is a good lesson <laughs> yeah they'll come out as we go so let's uh transition to 2012 uh you guys decided that you're gonna make this legit right 2012 um you take us from from there like what's going through your mind did, did you guys leave your jobs at this point no uh so we we, we shoestring uh some capital together from friends and family and, uh, you know, a lot of them told us later that that was more of a donation than an investment for them. But they gave us some money. We started really small on a basically glorified homebrew setup. Um, we really wanted to do everything ourselves from, from the brewing to the packaging to the delivery. And that was that was really uh, important deci- early decision for us. And we basically got a glorified homebrew setup op- operating in about 2,000 square feet. Why was that important to you to do everything yourself? Um, part of it was a a desire to really understand the industry and we couldn't do that if we, if we didn't have full control. Um, and part of it was like, we, we didn't want to play in any perfect sandbox. We didn't want to go and find a brewery to make us beer, like a contract brewer, as they call it in the industry. We didn't want to sign up with a distributor on day one to deliver the beer. Um, we, we just weren't confident in knowing enough to, to make those decisions at that time. And we figured the best way to learn was with our like with our hands again and, and kind of quotes of of let's figure it out and then we can make decisions about where we need help so really get deeper into that why is it so important to know how the industry works to, to figure it out on your own what was your your angle there exactly why was that so important to you uh i think cuz it's a highly regulated industry there's a lot of challenges around it um, if you know, for contract brewing, some of the things that we wanted to do in the early days were not normal and whether it would be using like bacteria or wild yeast, that was super important. We were also using a lot of unorthodox ingredients, like, uh, like rosemary, hibiscus, pink peppercorns, uh, green tea. And a lot of those brewers are like, Whoa, like you're not just making beer with four ingredients, you know, malt, yeast, hops, and water. Um, and we wanted some to do some longer fermentations to kind of build up the complexities. And those things weren't really possible. It was like, this beer has to be, you know, they run it more like a very tight factory. Not that we're not a factory, but we have that freedom. Um, and then the delivering the beer, the wholesale side of things, there's something called franchise law, which basically like once you start working with a distributor, you're locked in for life. It's the simplest way to describe it is marriage with no possibility yeah, of divorce. Yeah, and don't like the isn't it like Budweiser and Coors and like one other one like pretty much own all the distributing like it's yep. kind of a monopoly. Yep, yeah, uh, maybe more of a duopoly. Like you basically <laughs> yeah. have the choice of working with the guys that sell Budweiser or the guys that sell Miller Coors, uh, and 
you're so far down the totem pole of importance to them and revenue for them that you just kind of get lost in the book and nobody gives your brand any attention. <laughs> so it was like, how do we... This is a dog-friendly uh, office, by the way. <laughs> so uh, they're just saying hello. They couldn't wait. They've been so patient in the background. Uh, keep going. <laughs> That's Growler and Tap, too. So they're, they're, on, they're on theme. Uh, yeah, so we didn't want to be lost in the shuffle. And they, they take 30% margin, roughly. Um, and we were so tiny that like we needed every bit of margin. I, I think in hindsight, we didn't re- like really take into account like personal cost. Yeah. Uh, we started delivering beer at the back of my Subaru Outback, which I still drive today. But, uh, do you think making that decision to, to do everything yourself, to not go to distributors who are going to take a, a chunk of the, the overall, uh, profits, did that, impact where you are today do you think that was a, a key move back in the day thinking absolutely about it? i i look at a lot of other breweries that kind of started in the same like sort of school classes we did uh, started around the same time and where we are significantly bigger than the majority of them and we have i think a much better uh fan base consumer base uh account relationships and those uh, i i think the controlling our distribution destiny uh has really contributed to our overall success and I mean, we haven't talked about it yet, but we started a whole second business around distribution, which was never in the original business plan, um, but has has further deepened our roots into that stronghold. Michael, do you have any thoughts while we're having this conversation? I want to make sure we keep everybody in in the the conversation. Uh, What's going through your head as we're discussing this? I mean, I I think Rob covered most of it. The only thing I'll add is is when... um you know, when you do everything yourself, you, you so intimately know your business that like, you know, you, you failed at it so many times, like you failed at all the little things that, um, you know what you need to do better. Um, and so like we understood so intimately who our customers were because we were serving to them in the tap room and we understood all of our mm. accounts because we're, I mean, I was delivering beer and then I was also the sales guy. Um, we understood our books because like, you know, we didn't have the money to hire a whole accounting firm to run them in the beginning. So like, you know, in some ways our limited resources forced us to just like really know our business about as well as anyone could. And so then when you want to grow it, it's like, well, I I know the problems that I need to sort of address because like no one's more aware of my business than me. Yeah. And uh, no gaps. It's something that when you first mentioned this whole idea of doing everything yourself and like when you don't know how to do something that's a key part of your business and you say from the very beginning outsource and find somebody who can do those things uh when things don't work out with that person and you've been going six or six months to a year with that part of your business like just kind of automated and you have no freaking clue how it works and that person leaves well guess what like you still need that leg of your business to be successful and when nobody knows how to do it because you just immediately outsource for it then you're kind of screwed yeah. uh but if you started and you created the systems and then you plug somebody into the systems that you created because you figured out the the slow and hard way. Uh, you can you know call an audible and like shift and get back into that role and do it for as long as you need to to rehire somebody else to plug back into the system that you already created. Whereas you just are like shit. What are we gonna do now? Like when you just never took the time to figure it out. Do you want to reflect on that? Yeah, I mean we we've sort of made it like another one of our mantras around here is like often a manager's job is to, you know, work themselves out of that job uh in that they set up their department well enough that they could leave and someone else could take over um and they go on to, you know, get promoted or do something else. Um and that department could run, you know, fluidly. Um I mean, yeah, I, I think we've we've, you know, 
we've hired people that have worked well for the company and you know many of them are still with us today and they're the reason we're successful um but we've learned just as much about like who not to hire uh, or how not to hire uh we're still learning but i mean i'd say that's been hugely influential um as we've grown is you know i mean we're now at like 100 plus people um started awesome. with three it's crazy you learn a lot about people and uh hiring uh when you when you grow like that okay let's put that on the back burner what you've learned about people and growing sure. uh but one thing i'm really curious about because you mentioned it but earlier uh you were kind of responsible for the branding and the the feel the art that sort of thing uh and you had your you were so close to your customers because you were there on the floor with them every day sure. how did you develop your brand what was going through your mind as you're developing this brand and what like what exactly is it that you're trying to achieve yeah um I mean, I, I think, you know, I, there's some things I've learned since then. There's some things I was going into, ideas I was going into it with. So going into the business, um, I think what we, what we were trying to achieve was really like, you know, standing out um, from the competition, right? Because we're entering a marketplace where even in 2012, a lot of craft beers on the shelf. So one of our key goals was really um, how do we tell a unique story? Um you know, and literally I just would go into liquor stores and look at the shelf. And, um, a few things that stood out to me were, you know, every, every one of these looks like a beer label and no one looks like a wine label. Maybe we should try that for our labels. Um, so you tried to look like a wine label a little bit, you okay. know, pull the elements of, um, certain things from wine and make it stand out. Um, we tried to do sort of like this billboard effect where if you line up all of our beers next to each other, they'll really stand out side by side. Um, super intentional because it, it allows your shelf set to pop. Whereas some labels, they just look totally random side by side. Can you give us any specific things that you, you know of to make your label pop anything? Is it just depending on the market you're in, just trying to be different or is there like specific things we can do? I would say, um, you know, a smart, but limited use of color is one. Um, I mean, you sometimes just see, you know, every color on the rainbow on a shirt or on yeah. a, looking at your shirt on a label. Your gray um, shirt. <laughs> I literally have every color on the rainbow on my nightlight shirt. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I would say you're trying to draw the customer to something really specific. So mm -hmm. you're keeping a focus on, like, what are, they, what are they trying to look at? I mean, one thing we've done is just make our logo really big. Um, you know, I drew our logo back when we were still home brewing. And it's this hop owl that, you know, is inspired by owls, which are nocturnal, and then hops, which are a beer ingredient. Oh, I didn't even notice the hops. I just, I just always saw the owl. But now that you say yeah. it's a hop owl, I see that the, the body of the owl is a hop. That's cool. And it works if you don't know it, which is kind of <laughs> yeah. fun, you know. Um, and that's become, that's become a huge logo for us. Um, and I think, you know, our first labels, if you look at them, it was a pretty small logo. And then just tried to like grow the owl on the label as we've gotten bigger because it's become so much more important and it really is allow, allows us to become distinctive. Um, so having a good logo and then drawing attention to that um, has been huge. Okay. Um, you also mentioned the importance of the story. Um, yeah. What story were you trying to capture? What, what, what's the, the secret of getting or, you know, getting that story? What was going through your mind there? So I think a lot of our story in the beginning was actually told like word of mouth by us. Um, and what we were telling was just like the truth, which is like, we are home brewers. We're trying something out. We're trying to be weird, funky, experimental. So, so that story was really just like, we're scrappy and we are, 
we didn't even, I don't think, say this, but it was obvious we're the opposite of big breweries, mm-hmm. right? And I think a lot of people just identify with that sort of like David versus Goliath, you know, mentality. Um, Which is harder to do today because I feel like um, there's so many smaller breweries. Rob, I think Rob wants to say something. Go ahead. Put it on the mic. I was just going to add it. In our early days, one of the things we did on the label was we hand wrote on every bottle. Um, Our bottles always look very classy and super professional, but I I don't think they projected that we were a small, like three guys in a, a shitty shitty garage essentially mm-hmm. making beer and so we we very intentionally was like let's handwrite on every bottle and we did that for about two years you literally wrote on every bottle that was canned or bottled yep we would write bottle date batch number and abv uh on every one and that was painstaking and we uh, multiple oh times gosh. were like we should get rid of this process but we would actually hear back like wow this was a handcrafted product mm. this was actually touched by people not on a mega machine um, and another thing that we did in the early days, too, was we really wanted to kind of elevate beer and, and make it more wine-like and, and, and showcase that it's a great thing to pair with food. And so on our early labels for the first maybe year, I think almost every label had uh, food pairing suggestions on it. And we went super specific where we actually called out restaurants that we enjoyed and would call out dishes like go to this place and have like you know their beef tartare with this beer and we would pick places that didn't even carry our beer or we wouldn't even tell them uh, it was just places that that we loved we probably should have <laughs> checked uh but some of them actually then they would find out and then be like well we have to carry this beer now and it was like great like that was, that was a cool sale was, uh opportunity but it was really driven about what we were excited about eating Wait, say that again because I feel like it's really important. I want to make sure we put emphasis on there. Like the whole idea of, of pairing food and was that like a sales technique? Like get get back into that. I think we – at the time we were feeling like beer was a little more commodity. Like you just – like especially fresh out of college, you know, you just drink this. Like you just pound it. Uh, it doesn't have much flavor. It goes down quick. Sure, there was some IPAs that were and, – and at the time we started getting into like big beers like barley wines and stuff. But it didn't seem like people were like – treating it like a, a beverage like wine that had all these nuances and, and characteristics and could really help elevate the food dish, um, not just be a, a liquid to quench thirst. And I, I think that's where we were like, well, let's really make this explicit and, and put it on the label. And we used to put, I think, about three food suggestions on. See, yeah, that's, I mean, that's huge. Uh, you're doing the job for the restaurant tour at that point, right? Yep. You're like, oh, like, I don't have to think about what this is going to pair well with. Like, it, they've already done that for me. And uh, was so that was intentional, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Absolutely. Uh, I'll be honest. When the first time you said that, I was looking at all the, the logos behind you and I got totally distracted. I was like, wait, something important just happened and I missed it. Do you want to grab that ox? Oh, that these. has that. It used to hold your monitor. It's just a cardboard box <laughs> that has that. stickers on it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. oh man, I think, yeah. oh, there's beers in there. No, uh, it's like an empty bottle. But look at look at the trifecta label or the Maynard Weiss label that's on there. I'm gonna. Uh, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a photo yeah. of this and I'll put it in the show notes so you guys can see what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah do you want to talk us through real quick what we're looking at? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, man. So we're looking at all of our old labels. Um, and I, I think what you'll see is, I mean, it, it's, there's so much variety between the labels um, over the years. But I think the consistency is, um, you know, we're, we're trying to tell a super focused and clear message. And, um, you know, if you look at every single one, like there's very specific details we're trying to call out, um, you know, the story behind who we are. Um, some of the flavor notes uh, or tasting notes that are uh, in that bottle, 
um, the brand name, the logo. Um, and I, I think, you know, what we're also trying to do is just give, give the customer like an exciting experience with that bottle. And, you know, the label tells the story or should tell the story of the liquid inside and trying to figure out what that story is, is, you know, a fun, creative process, but it's, it's never easy. Keep going. I'm just doing a little Instagram story. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, oh, the other thing I wanted to touch on, which is, um, I think is, has been huge to our, our sort of one of our reasons for success is, um, you know, when, when you're small and scrappy, it's so easy to sort of like play up that a little bit and, um, not put a focus on like a quality experience and, and sort of like make it obvious or, or, or let go of uh, the customer experience because you're so small. But I think one thing we really did was we tried to, um, you know, walk the walk of a really, really high quality brand despite our limited resources. So for example, um, our tap room experience, like when you walked in, like we had a 90 square foot tap room and the rest of the brewery was like, chaos but at the same time like we cleaned the crap out of that tap room every single morning when people would come in um and we tried to provide like you know super high quality experience despite the fact that like you know we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't have a lot of time um like rob said we wrote on all of our bottles and we didn't really have the time to do that we used champagne bottles instead of your standard like bomber bottle because we thought that that kind of elevated the experience again so i, I think with with corks, which was like, <laughs> what were we doing? I mean, again, it, we, but we tried trial to create, and error, right? You but you're trying to create an image, which is like, this is a high quality brand. Um, and my hope was that like someone who got that bottle, who didn't necessarily come and see our operation, would think, wow, this is like a really beautiful, you know, high quality establishment. And then you come to us and you're like, oh, it's a fancy taproom, but Jesus, that is an ugly brewery. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I I, I just think like creating or putting a focus on quality uh first uh was something that we decided to do and it has never left us yeah so we haven't really even spoken that much about more current time uh from like say 2014 to present uh scaling on a on you know getting to a certain level and then scaling from there uh any like aha moments or falls on your ass or anything during that scaling process that was a huge uh, pivotal point for you that you can drop on us now rob you can you think of anything or mike uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna have I, I think you should speak to this one but i think it's one in 2014 when we sort of like realized we had infected beer but rob can tell the story yeah swing it over oh, talk about bad beer <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I think we we always set out to try to be a high quality kind of top tier brewery brand, but we didn't always know what that meant. Um, and we had just moved to the new facility, um, and we bought bigger tanks because we were hoping to buy a bigger brew house. Uh, but through that scaling up process, we didn't quite think through all the moving steps. And at the time, we also really hadn't invested in any sort of quality control lab program. Um, QAQC type stuff and we were having really we would we would brew for basically about 30 hours to fill one of these tanks um, and then the beer was going bad and we had so little money sometimes we let some of that beer be sold which was a terrible decision in hindsight kills your brand it kills your brand um, but we we were also somewhat desperate um and we also dumped a lot of beer, uh, and we still dump beer today when it doesn't work out. But we really kind of hunkered down and said, like, if we're about quality, how do we not have all these la- – like, how do we not have a microscope, a, and a microbiotic, 
program. How do we not have SOPs around what defines quality beer? SOPs, standard operating procedures. Yes. Yep. yep. Uh, and let's. That's the problem. And this it's, is around 2014, where you guys it was just like three or how many people were on your team in 2014? Yeah, maybe 10 to 20. People. So you want? Yeah. So you're starting to get to the point where. From like 2007 to 2013, it was just a few of you. You knew that you were surrounded by people who had the same standards that you had, the same drive that you had, and it was much easier to control these things. You start adding more people to the mix. You start doing more things. It's much easier to become consistent uh, when you start scaling. So you started saying to yourself, let's start creating these checks and balances, these standard operating procedures. What did that process look like? I would also add in that process, I, I reached out to one of the local Boston kind of brew legends, uh, Will Myers from Cambridge Brewing Company, and I asked, hey, can I come by with myself and one of our lead brewers and, and have you taste and smell these beers and help me help us figure out what's wrong? Okay. And uh, that was that was like your father slapping your wrist and saying like you're 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 a dumb bad kid uh and it was <laughs> but it was very i you know he probably doesn't even know how impactful that conversation was for us um and that's really when we went back to the drawing board and it was like okay we can't keep spending money on buying more tanks to brew more beer if we don't know if the beer is going to be good and yeah so we we hired a full-time uh, lab guy who had a master's um he was thinking about getting his PhD in, in, in chemistry and microbiology. And then we started buying lab equipment, which at the time was like out $20,000 for this freaking microscope. And I was like, what? Like, How much did it cost you to produce a, uh, an entire finished product, like a batch of beer? Uh, well, at that time, the batch of beer, I mean, with labor, five dollars to $10,000. So you do two batches that go out shitty. Guess what? Yep. Right there. So there's the RI. And there's a, a famous quote. I can't remember who said it, but it's, it's along the lines of, if you don't have time or money to do it right the first time, what makes you think you're going to have the time and money to do it right a second time? So, you know, you want to reflect on that? Yeah. I, I think that was, that was all those things combined of us like, oh, God, like if we're not investing in quality, if we don't protect every part of the process, we're going to be out of business faster than anything. And even today, we have three full-time people that just focus on quality as well as the whole production team. And I would say bartenders and sales team all do have uh, a hand in quality now. And we, we probably have uh, more quality people than any other brewery our size, as well as, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars now of lab equipment. But it's been absolutely fundamental to have a consistently high-quality product in the market that we can really stand by. Uh, and be proud to, to yeah. sell and, and, and consume every day. There's even a few breweries that I, like, I don't want to start naming names, but there's one beer, I'll call it the Crisp. You know which one I'm talking about, probably if I say that. It's Six Point Brewery. Um, <laughs> they have the, the Crisp, and I really I really loved the, the Crisp the first time I tried it. It was amazing. Clean, crisp, Pilsner, hard to do well. But if you screw up a Pilsner, you're going to know instantly. Yeah. And I went back like six months later after buying this beer for six months and the, the second, like that second batch that made it up to New Hampshire was totally different. Um, and I don't buy it anymore. So it, it, it goes to show that like, if you want to retain customers, you got to have it come out exactly the same every time because people will know the difference, especially if it's one of their favorite beers. They, they know it, they love it. They're intimate with it. I, I it's kind of funny. You mentioned Pilsner because at around the same time of this kind of like, tumultuous like we moved to a new facility the equipment's wrong the, the beer's going bad uh 
some industry folks were, were saying that the reason why we like to brew beer with a lot of funky ingredients was because we, we didn't know how to brew beer and um, we use those ingredients to cover up uh, poor, poor processes. And so I was really irate about that and upset. <laughs> and I was like, that's not true. I, uh, we're, we're brewing these because we think that they're more complex and more interesting to drink. Uh, and so then I was like, okay, next week we're, I'm brewing a freaking Pilsner because then there's nothing to hide. Yeah. And, uh, I tweeted at one of the guys that was uh, saying it. And I was like, come back in like a month when the Pilsner's on and you tell me what's wrong. wrong You're still running that Pilsner now, aren't you? It's called Pfaffenhack, uh, which is named after a small village where my aunt and uncle live in Germany. Uh, so that, that beer came out of sort of uh, uh, trying to prove a standpoint that we could make clean quality beer that had nothing to hide behind. Awesome. I love it. Um, man, I can't believe how fast time is going. We're already at like 15 minutes of recording time talking to you guys. Uh, it's a good sign. That means that the conversation has been great. Um, one thing I want to dive into before we go to the speed round, uh, working well together is one, the one thing. The other thing is we learned a lot about people in the hiring process. I want to make sure we, um, get some nuggets from that. So let's start with the whole, uh, what you learned about people and hiring, uh, Michael, Rob, who wants to take that first? Uh, the, the idea came from Michael. So a note I made <laughs> you were talking earlier. So what did you learn? Like what, what is it? How has your, uh, team building, uh, process or your hiring process changed? What have you learned about people? Um, I mean, I think Rob probably agrees with me on this one. It's interesting. We I look back, and every single time someone hasn't ended up working out with us, we knew pretty quickly um, that they weren't going to be a fit or they weren't a fit. Um, pretty rarely has someone like succeeded here for a long time, and then suddenly they surprise you. Um, so we've sort of adopted another mantra around here, which is fail quickly mm-hmm. if you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, don't let something sort of bring the company down slowly because, um, we've just seen time and again, you know, we've let people stick around too long. Um, and then it takes, it it does a lot of damage. Um, why, how it can affect, uh, staff culture. Um, it affects client relationships or customer relationships. Um, it affects, um, processes that are happening because they, you know, let's just say someone is, uh, you know, more egocentric, right? So everything sort of starts to revolve around them and they start protecting things. And, um, I think it just leads to sort of a, a lack of communication and transparency. Uh, and that's, if that's the culture you're trying to create, which we are, it's fighting that. Um, and so it, it you know, it's, it's the classic cliche, like, you know, one weak link will bring everyone down or whatever it is. Um, you know, that, that's so true. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, they think about what it's their culture is, like. right? They're like, oh, like our culture is what we write down on the paper and it's our core values, our mission statement. And that's true. That contributes to your culture. But your culture at in this moment at this time is exactly what's happening. So that means the people that you have on your team, if you have people on your team that aren't aligned with your culture, then guess what? You're, that's your culture, not what you have written down. Your culture is, is what is happening in this moment. Uh, so if, that, if, if what's happening in this moment, the people aren't aligned with what you're trying to do, then, then you've got to get those people off your team. You've got to get the right people that are aligned with what you actually wrote down, right? So true. So. And, and I'll also say like – you know, sometimes it's people aren't a good fit and that that's when you have to cut them. But sometimes like we failed because we just under communicate what we're trying to do. Mm. So, so that was, that was my next question. Yeah. So now that you've understood the, the importance of having the right people on your team, what checks and balances have you guys created to make sure you're hiring the right people? 
Well, the latest thing we did was uh, hire an HR director. Because <laughs> we're like a, a little behind on that. So that's the, the most recent fix um, or hopefully you know, positive to our hiring process going forward. And um, that should do a lot. But I would just say um, making sure that we're communicating. Um, we just assume that stuff sort of leaks out from the leadership level and you just can't make that assumption. Um, you have to be super deliberate in your communication. Communicating uh, to the person you're about to hire. Rob wants to. Yeah, Rob, jump in. I'll just add, too, that uh, especially in the early days, we would hire people that we wanted to drink beers with. Uh, and that sounds super simple, but uh, drinking beers with your buddies don't necessarily make the best coworkers or peers. Uh, and so that that was kind of one challenging thing that we've had to evolve through of like, yeah, we all love hanging out with this guy. Yeah, we all have fun. Yeah, we we drink a lot of beers together and we get some good laughs, but uh, that doesn't make him a good employee and uh, or her a good employee. And sometimes we have to let those people go. But another thing that we've we've also done is we've we're starting to use a software called Predictive Index that uh, kind of it's sort of a personality test. Um, it's super simple, but it, it's super insightful at the same time. And for me, what that does is kind of remove that automatic ingrained thinking of I like this person, so I should hire him um, and, and puts them on a more, you know, blind objective objective kind of basis where I can say, is this the type of personality I need for this role? So you create a profile, you make people take this test and then you're making sure they, they fit the profile that you've created. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's another not every role or every position needs the same person the, the, the a brewer that needs to follow a recipe every single day the same way is a different type of person than you want as like your sort of maverick sales guy that's just figuring out another way to sell that extra case or another keg like those are very different personalities one is someone who's like wants to follow every detail and is concerned about the process and one is like I rewrite the book every freaking day uh, and and I push and I challenge and I question the, the brewer. You don't want them to question the recipe. Yeah. <laughs> that goes yeah. back to the quality thing. Like, yeah. He's like, what if I don't well, add this? This isn't right. Today? We're going to tweak it a little. <laughs> uh, but yeah. the head chef or, or the head, head brewer for us is a different type of, of personality. You want them to question, yeah. could this beer be better? Yeah. What if we did tweak this process? Gotcha. So I think that's that's a you know something that we've learned to cool. evaluate so one last question um partnerships right uh i've i've been doing a lot of interviews lately and i've been noticing that there's a a a trend going on with the newer concepts that are coming out that are doing really well that are coming out of the gates and becoming super successful they're not doing it alone there's partnerships involved what are the key elements that you think make your partnership work well you already mentioned communication i think uh being a big part of you, what makes you guys work well? Uh, I picked up on you guys uh, complementing each other's strengths and weaknesses well. What else? What else is in there that I'm missing that is key to your partnership that makes it work? I mean, I, I it's sort of, sort of goes to the compliments of of strength and weaknesses, but I, I feel like we don't take a, offense to a lot of things that we say. Like, dude, you're actually doing a shit job. Like, honesty, honesty, transparency. Yeah. Um, because I think we've had times where we've kind of bottled in things that are bothering us about each other, but we've really found like, this is actually really pissing me off, man. Like if we just say that and, and know that it's coming from a place of like, we want this to be better, uh, not just interpersonally, but for the company. Yeah. Uh, that that's, 
that's super powerful. And, uh, you know, we take the punches and, and, and we ask our employees to give us punches too. Uh, <laughs> they, that always doesn't play out, but, uh, we can only get better if someone tells us we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Uh, do you want to add to that, Michael? Um, I, not really. Not yeah. really. I, I mean, the, the, this book is sitting here uh, next to us, and it's called Principles by Ray Dalio. Rob just read it. I'm reading it now, but one of the things he says in it is just like, failure is an opportunity to learn every single yeah, time. And absolutely. Like, that that goes to like on a partnership level. Like when either of us is failing, and we're constantly failing in small ways. Like it's good to hear it because you got to tell each other know. you're yeah. failing. You got to let people know when they're falling short. They might not know it. We drift, you know, like it's natural. That's why it's so important to write down standards, to write down core values, to write down mission statements, to write down visions. Cause you will drift over time. You'll get away from whatever, whatever it is you're trying to communitively collectively do. Uh, and it's your responsibility to let the other person know, like point at the core values on the wall. Like, listen, is like that one of our core values? Are you operating at extreme excellence right now? Like, no, you're not. Like, you got to speak up. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to steal the fun. No, no, that's so true. <laughs> I mean, I do think like you do have to share something, right? It, it can't just be that like we can all criticize each other and that's great. I mean, we all we all love this, right? Yeah. Like, there's a passion there, and there's like an optimism that like we can do better tomorrow that like I think is ingrained in us and that's like that's what's driven us from like day one to now. Which yeah. Is still day one according to Ross yeah. first mantra. In uh just seeing how you guys interact and listening to your ethos, I think trust is a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, you guys have a lot of trust in each other. And um, I've just finished listening, listening to Mark Manson's, the subtle art art of not giving a fuck. Uh, you got it on your shelves over here. Yeah, man. He, he wraps up that book uh, talking about trust and the difference between uh, Russian and uh, Eastern culture or sorry, Western and Eastern, basically uh, Eastern being, uh, Russian culture where they just are very blunt. Uh, like if something's stupid, the, the, that's stupid, not like in a dis- disrespectful way, but just a very nonchalant, like that's a stupid idea. And like they're, they, they've created this culture of just straight shootingness. I don't know what you call it. Just bluntness because the, because of the speed of trust. And when you can count that that person's going to tell you in that moment, whether you have a good idea or a bad idea, or you're doing a shitty job or a good idea, like you can trust that person in Westerners kind of created this way of just bullshitting everybody uh, and just saying whatever that person wants to hear to be polite in that moment, which doesn't do anybody any service. Yeah, I I would. I mean, I love that idea. Just (laughs) blunt honesty that I like I crave. Um, You don't you don't get it. So you really have to I think you have to work for it here. Um, But I think if if at least we believe in it as founders and we're we're pushing that, um, hopefully a little bit of it. You know, Beautiful. Awesome stuff. Anything we haven't gotten out? Anything that we're leaving on the t- or not leaving on the table that you want to bring to the surface before we move to the speed round? I've loved this conversation, by the yeah, way. Yeah, no, this blast. has been yes. awesome. Um, we no, good? I mean, let's, let's dive right in. All right. Let's we're going to take it. a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two Things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with cashflowtool.com, the ultimate cloud based solution for your business. Cashflowtool.com is simple 
powerful, and predictive. It's simple because it requires no data entry. It's always up to date and it works on any device, anywhere. It's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar, activity feed, and anomaly detector, you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises. And it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow. Head over to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price. All right, I have a question for you. How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based restaurantethics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to ethicssuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you will get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there what did i do with that (laughs) we're good uh we're back and the first question i have for you guys is what are your it factors a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success michael started off uh, I was like, not ready at all. Um, I would say optimism. Optimism. Beautiful. Yeah. What do you got, Rob? Swinging it your way. Oh, man. I, I honestly was about to say the same thing. Positivity was what I was going to You can have the same it factor. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Mike's on Rob. We'll keep it there. Next question. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, I think even though I just said positivity, I think I'm bad at giving people positive feedback. I think I'm always trying to push for more, uh, and I forget to compliment what they've achieved today that that was it the compliment sandwich right yep uh the negative smush between two bread positives uh i think is what they call i can't remember exactly how it goes but what do you have for your biggest weakness michael I think mine is I, I I can tend to sort of like fall in love with an idea and uh, I need someone to check me often on like why this might not be a good idea. Mm. Uh, I'll follow it to the end and sometimes I need Stubborn. someone to say, hey, you know, you're missing some stuff. Got you. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Take it, Michael. I, I look to just see if someone has humility. Um, why I is think humility that's one so important? you can't find on a resume. Why is that important? If, if someone's humble, it's, it means they're willing to learn, uh, and we're trying to create a culture here where we're constantly learning. Awesome. Rob, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I look for a passion. Mm. Are, are they going to be excited to come here every day? Do they love what they do in their respective field? Are they excited to be a salesperson or an HR director? Like those, or accounting, like uh, that. I wouldn't get up and excited to do financial work every day, but... Um, if they have a passion for it, like they're going to be a good hit, a uh, good hire. And I think 
we've talked about passion throughout this this talk but uh that's important because that resonates through everything we do beautiful and share sorry what's one current challenge today uh and how are you overcoming it uh i think just generally what's the smartest and most responsible way to grow the business we we have over 100 people that work here and i feel very responsible for their paychecks and their mortgages and their car payments and what can we do to grow this and give them more opportunities but also not have them not have a job. What is the most responsible way to grow your business? <laughs> oh man, if you can tell me, that would be, be great. Uh, but yeah, I think we're looking at things like expanding our our revenue streams, going into other beverages, adding new products. Uh, I mean, the wholesale operation, we sell other people's products and trying to make sure that we have a strong, stable foundation that we can build more levels to and more floors to. And so that the best and brightest can also be promoted and, and stay within the company and not have to leave for other opportunities. So it's kind of a balance of like trying to retain the best and brightest as well as like let's diversify yeah. our revenue. You guys are, are, are at a very like interesting, unique point of your like life as a, a small business, like lots of hard decisions to make about directions to go in. I can only imagine what that's like. Yeah, and <laughs> as we sign uh, on to more and more debt uh, from banks and stuff th- that we, the founders, personally guarantee, that that's scary stuff for us, especially as we both have young families. Um, are we going to be homeless if we make the wrong decision? Can we pay back these million-dollar debt loans? Uh, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. I was just scanning Michael's bookshelf to see if he has small giants up there. It's, it's, it's the one I'm going to recommend by Bo Burlingham. I think you'll be – do you have anything to add to that uh, as far as challenges go? He covered a lot. Uh, I, mean, I think you know, a little more specifically, what does 2019 look like uh, and what assumptions are we making about that year that um, we shouldn't have or where, where have we not sort of um, – where have we not looked? You know, yeah. what corners are we not looking in? What corners have you discovered at, by after after asking that question? Is there any opportunity that you've come across that you're willing to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Um, we we had a huge success this year with a beer called Nightlight, which is a challenge to the light beer industry. Uh, it's a craft light lager, and it's playing in a space where you know Budweiser and Miller play. It's, it's a macro space. I'm seeing that starting to happen right now, where people like like people have gotten so creative. They've like gone into like every spectrum possible, and now people are like, "Well, let's just be like yeah. it's hard to go to a grocery store and get a, a solid lager that's not a Budweiser or a Coors. Like you just right. want like a solid like made local, session beer, yeah, craft, tastes better, exciting packaging, yeah, um, independent brewery." So I think we we found that was an interesting discovery this year, and what do we do with that, and how do we grow it? Is do you have something question. in your uh, mix up now that fits that scope? Besides nightlight, oh wait, nightlight's the one. Sorry, you already mentioned that's it. the one. Sorry. And then it's it's like, do we add to it? Uh, do we just focus on growing that? I'm, um, I'm leaving me here with some uh, nightlight. If that's or maybe I'll swim by the brewery. Yeah, we'll we get it over case. there. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Okay, I <laughs> can't say no to that. Yeah. So anyway, uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. I, I often uh, try and have people focus on like cutting and clarifying. Uh, this is specific for marketing. I was just managing the marketing department because our um, the director went on maternity leave and cutting and clarifying our message because it's so easy to get caught up in all the messages you could say. So focusing in on like, what's the most important. Message. Yeah. Again, I just finished reading the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And it's like, you actually do have to give a, a fuck about something, but it's about being selective 
over what fucks you give. Yeah. Right? Because you can't give fucks to everyone. Uh, if you, I mean, it's weird because I'm listening to this book and it's totally cool to say give a fuck because he yeah. just says it all the time. <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah. Uh, do you want to add to that or do you have thoughts? I think just trust is, is super important. We, I know we touched on it before, but I feel like oftentimes some people go into like conspiracy theories or, or assume malice intent. And it's like you got to believe at, that everyone here is trying to do the best thing possible. They might have made a poor decision, but we have to trust that they are taking care of the company. And then let's dive in deeper and understand their, their thinking and logic. And, and then we can solve the mm-hmm. real root of the problem if there is a, even a problem. Got it. Because um, there might be really good rational reasons why people have done something. And if we're always questioning each other, we're, we're never going to move the company forward beautiful what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team so maybe this is something uh regarding how your tap room bartenders are going the extra mile or got anything there i mean i think just approachable accessible and like educationally driven we've you know we make a lot of high-end very geeky beers but we've always set out to make sure that anybody with any type of palate or any type of knowledge around the beer industry can feel welcome in our tap rooms uh and and they can learn if they're curious and are and to educate our bartenders so that they have knowledge of like why this beer tastes differently than the other or what hops are and why does citra taste different than mosaic hops and things like that um so that we can we can have a place where anybody from any demographic, ethnicity, knowledge can can come and have a good time, and and, and you see that uh, translate into our menu too. Beautiful, I love it. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Want to keep it going with Rob? We'll sure. Back to Michael. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, the Simon Sinek book, uh, Better Together. I, I have an 18 month old daughter, and uh, I've been reading a lot of cartoon books, and I love that he threw in like this kind of cartoon <laughs> nice. with these like quick little one liners, and you can flip through it. Absorbs or, much better. Yeah, yeah. It's simple. It feels light, but there's some very powerful statements in that book, um, and that distill it down and is almost like cliff notes to a bunch of other great books on on businesses and, Love and it. leadership and things like Beautiful. that. Beautiful. All right, swinging it your way, Michael. One book. Um, I'm reading this book right now called Originals by Adam Grant, um, and it kind of it somewhat turns on the head the a lot of the assumption out there about what makes a successful entrepreneur and i think if you're you know looking to get into any business it's a fascinating read to sort of uh question what you normally would think would one be lesson from that book that was surprising to you um yeah uh the first mover advantage is sort of a myth um and most first mover, movers actually fail and it's the second mover who sort of like watch the mistakes of the first mover that yep. ends up doing better yeah beautiful uh if there was one tool or resource that you wish you had now or you had when you were getting started to learn from wait this is the first time i'm asking this question so it reads kind of weird to me so bear with me you guys are getting this question for the first time if there was one tool or resource that you wish you had now or wish you had when you're getting started to learn from others in the industry what would it it's just reads weird. I know exactly what you're asking. Yeah. (laughs) I would have loved, uh, the IRI scan data that we, uh, we use now. It's basically pulling, you know, data from all of our retail stores and it, we have a tool that basically allows us to analyze like how are our brands selling compared to other brands on retail shelves. What was that tool called again? Um, so we, the one we have is called armadillo. Um, but it's, it's based on IRI scan data. 
um, which is basically like barcodes being scanned at retail stores. Okay. All that gets compiled. And, um, if I could, if I could like wish for one, it would be the same information for all of our restaurants. Okay. All we have is retail. Uh, we have nothing for like, so what information would, does that give you that is so beneficial? It basically allows us to see like, where are the opportunities? Uh, where are the winners? Who are the losers? What's surprising that wouldn't be obvious? Um, and it's specifically pull, um, velocity on the shelf. So it's not, what are we selling, but what are people buying? Which, we can't access unless you know we we look at this data. Gotcha. Did you want to add anything to that, Rob? Uh, he stole my answer once again. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> That's fine. Uh, you I, guys I can have the same answers. I think in the early days we would be like, why isn't there more saisons on the shelf? And so then we would start brewing a bunch of saisons, and then they wouldn't really sell that well. And like we were just like, oh, th- there seemed to be a niche that we could fulfill, but there was actually a reason. There was no real consumer demand for mm. it. And so this data set now kind of helps us. You know, if we think we have a thesis or an opportunity that we discovered, like, is there any market movement that indicates this is a good idea to invest in uh, and and play? Got you. Uh, What is one thing that you feel restaurateurs or other breweries don't do well enough or do often enough that you do well and often? I think we talked about a little bit, but I think identifying our weaknesses and hiring for those, uh, I feel like I, I talk to a lot of brewery owners that want to do it all and and control every piece of their business and and don't trust anybody else to do it as well as them. And I think that's where the downfall is. You you you're, you can never be good at everything, um, and and you should be conscious of your of your weaknesses. Beautiful. And do we need to add to that, or are we good there? Um, add to it? I'll just say uh, focusing on your customer problems. I think it's so easy to caught, get caught up in like what your vision of you know, your big plan is. Um, and at the end of the day, it's the customers who are going to decide whether or not you have sales. And so solve those problems and, uh, you know, maybe be open to questioning your vision. Got you. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your breweries and your future restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things, you know, to be true, uh, that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces be? All right. So I had a chance to prep. So (laughs) I I got these down and Rob has a chance to think, um, mine are, uh, cultivate a lifestyle that keeps you smiling and laughing. Um, stay focused and assume you're wrong more often than you're right. Beautiful. I love it. And what do you got, Rob? Was that enough time for you to think of three? Oh, man. I don't know if I can go through <laughs> that quickly. Uh, those are pretty big legacy things. Um, I think just challenging the status quo, you know, just because there's a lot of beers on the shelf doesn't mean there's not room for more great beers out there. I think, um, you know, your time outside of work is super valuable and it, it kind of always impresses me when people just come home and play video games or, or don't do anything, and but talk about like, man, my life would be better if I did blank. You know, I know it's exhausting after a full day's of work, but but put in that extra thing to follow your passions. I mean, we followed our night passion and turned it into a really a great business. Uh, and three, I don't know, love what you do. If if you're not, I mean, Michael talked about it earlier, but if you're not waking up every day psyched to go to work. Uh, life's too short. Um, Beautiful. you got to find a new career path. Rob, Michael, thank you guys so much for taking the time to sit with me today to share your story, your knowledge. Uh, I'm sorry that Mike couldn't make it, but we got some good stuff from you. And uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. And actually, i got to give Gardy a shout-out right now. Gardy started listening to the show. Uh, he reached out to me. 
and I saw the the handle uh, or the email. The end was Night Shift Brewery. I was like, that's like only like forty five minute drive from my house. I was like, I gotta go check this place out. That day, I got the email from Gardy saying, you know, how much he appreciated the show. I started listening. I was like, we need to get you guys on the show, and I'm happy I did because you guys are doing some really great stuff. And uh, side note. I am listening, so if you guys do shoot me an emails, uh, you, you know of some people that would make great guest mentors on the show, please put them on my radar. I will act on it. And on that note, who do you guys respect, admire, and think would be a great guest mentor on the show like you made for us today? Um, yeah, one person <coughs> Excuse me, one person uh, we've kept in touch with is Michael Cooney over at Brewer's Fork. I don't know if you've talked to him yet. Um, but Have not. Great. Yeah, he's an awesome guy running a great program and uh, just down-to-earth dude. Um, yeah, sweet. I'll Mike Cooney, it. look out. I'm coming after you. And do you have one you want to add to that, Rob? Uh, I mean, I, I would go more beer industry. Uh, Dan Canary from Harpoon. Uh, he's a, such a smart guy, and he's, he's been in the industry for so long and seen the kind of boom and bust cycles. And he's just such a, a, a great speaker, and, and uh, it's, uh, he's fascinating to listen to. Uh, Dan and Mike, look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know if we want to maybe come join your team or get your beer, what's the best way to connect and follow you guys and what you're doing? I mean, so we're super active on social media at Night Shift Beer, I think is all our handles. Um, we also, uh, do we have the where to buy map? I actually don't know. Yeah, we do. We have a rough where to buy map on our website. But if you don't find it at your favorite local bar or liquor store, ask them to carry us and uh, we'll try to make it happen. And uh, you guys are obviously uh, in. Uh, maybe it's not obvious. We're in just outside Boston, Everett, Massachusetts. Uh, how far is your reach at this point? We pretty much sell about 98% of our beer in Massachusetts. We go out to Provincetown and out to kind of Amherst, uh, Springfield. We don't quite go all the way to the Berkshire County, but uh, we send a little bit of beer to New York City and a little bit of beer to Maine. All right. And that's it for right So now. if you're maybe on the outskirts there, Maine, New York, and you want this stuff, it's good stuff. You want to put it in your restaurants, uh, reach out to these guys. And the best way to connect, did you already say it? Did I miss at Night Shift Beer? Or we also have an info at nightshiftbrewing.com email address that usually comes eventually to one of the founders, yeah. uh, depending on what, what you're asking. Get this stuff on your menu. It's good stuff. All right, guys. Uh, I have to say it again. Uh, thank you so much. And like always, Mike, Rob, you guys, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, thank you so much to Michael and Rob for taking the time to share your story and your knowledge. And thank you to Gardy for taking the time to write me a thoughtful email uh, and putting these guys on my radar. And I am listening to you guys, uh, so please do make suggestions. Uh, what were the big takeaways from today's conversation? Uh, get out there, experience life, find your path, try new things. That's exactly what happened to these two guys. Uh, you know, Rob uh, just started brewing as a hobby because he was curious. And then that passion evolved and grew over time. And then uh, they just started where they could. They started throwing parties and inviting people with one uh, rule that you have to rate our beer, that you have to give us feedback. And they knew from a very early stage that it's all about uh, listening to your customers and giving your customers what they want and, and evolving slowly, treating every day like day one, right? And I also really love uh, this idea of making sure you uh, create systems, SOPs, right? Uh, quality control. I think that was a really good lesson from today's conversation. Uh, you know, it's expensive to 
make mistakes, especially when you start doing things in big batch. Take the extra time to work in systems, processes, procedures, protocols, so you don't make big mistakes. Huge lesson there. And man, just tons and tons and tons of great stuff today. I think the last lesson I want to highlight is uh, culture, right? Uh, Your culture isn't what you write down Although that has an impact on what your culture becomes, your culture is what's happening in your business right now in this moment. If it's not what you want it to be, make changes to make it what you want it to be. Uh, And yeah, uh, great stuff. I'm just rambling at this point. (laughs) Uh, Like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at RestaurantUnstoppable.com. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, I'm going to be taking off again on the road. Uh, in like two weeks, it's crazy to think how close that is. Uh, if you know of anybody between New Hampshire and Texas that needs to be on the show, please put them on my radar. I'll do everything I can uh, to make an example of them. And the best way to support this podcast is by sharing it. So if you know of anybody who's aspiring to be great in this industry, uh, Look, you are the average of those you surround yourself with. At Restaurant Unstoppable, you can surround yourself with with the best professionals we got to offer. And yeah, it's powerful stuff. So don't keep it to yourself. Share it with others. And the more you share it, uh, the the more I can serve you, the the more that helps the podcast. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.